thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. Open your Bibles, please, to the book of 1 Peter. We are continuing our way through that book, one passage at a time. I just want to take just a moment to let you know where we're headed in the future as we near the close of the book of First Peter. We have just a few sermons left. Uh, God willing, we'll begin to explore the book of Romans in the spring, so looking forward to that, one of my favorite books in the Bible. But before we get there, um, we're going to take time to do something we do here about every year or so, and it's to have our question and answer sermon series. That will begin March 8th. This um, is where... Uh, we elders take questions from you, the congregation, and uh, look at those questions and then seek to answer them from the pulpit in the form of sermons. So if you have questions, theological, ethical questions, biblical questions, then go ahead and send those to me and I'll take them to the elders and we'll choose at least four of those questions and turn them into a short four-part sermon series, our Q&A sermon series. If you need to know how to get a hold of me, my email is... O'Bannon, my last name, O'Bannon at newlifepca.org. And uh, if you can't remember that or want more information about get a hold of me, go to the Welcome Center. But go ahead and start sending in your questions, and we'll uh, look forward to the beginning of that series in March. 1 Peter 4 is our passage this morning. We're looking at verses 7 through 11. Um, I remember uh, a few years ago, I was talking to the director of the Heart to Heart Pregnancy Center, which I think now is First Choice for Women, changed its name, but uh, this is a a ministry, Christian ministry, to uh, women who are thinking about having abortions. And uh, this director and I were having a conversation, and he was talking about the various women who come, many young single women coming and uh, unsure about what to do, and it's a Christian ministry, so I was curious to know how they ministered to these women, and I asked the director if it happened very often that some of these women became Christians through the ministry of, uh, of this uh, pregnancy center, and he said, actually, no, it doesn't happen very often, and the reason why is because most of the women who come are already Christians. And the reason that they're there at the pregnancy center is because they didn't have the strength to go back to their churches and to reveal what had happened in their lives. They were so overwhelmed with fear and dread about the way they'd be received in their churches that they were considering an abortion instead. Now, the church is supposed to be, isn't it, a place of refuge, a place of safety, a place where we can bring our brokenness. This is supposed to be a place for sinners, and yet very often doesn't it turn out that the church ends up being a place of condemnation, a place of judgment, a place of pressure and stress for people who are struggling and afflicted in a number of different ways. It's not supposed to be that way, friends. (laughs) The church is a hospital for sinners. 
And I think it's very interesting as we look here at 1 Peter chapter 4 that we see this passage, verses 7 through 11, that are strategically placed between verses 1 through 6, which we covered last week. And you might remember that sermon was about how it is better to suffer than to sin. And then starting with verse 12 through the end of the chapter, Peter goes on to talk even more about suffering. Do not be surprised at the fiery trial that comes upon you. He talks about being willing to um, suffer in the way that Christ suffered. So suffering just seems to be this theme in chapter 4. And so next week, get ready, we're going to have another sermon on the topic of suffering. But right here in between those two passages, verses 1 through 6 and then 12 through 19, are verses 7 through 11. And here this passage is kind of like this little oasis, that this little refuge, this place of hope, this shelter in the storm for God's people who are carrying afflictions and troubles and difficulties. And what Peter is going to tell us is that the place that we ought to be able to go to find the encouragement and strength that we need is the church, the community of faith, the body of believers. And so, we're going to read this now and see what Peter has to say to us. He explains pretty clearly that there are four components of the church that ought to provide a refuge for those carrying heavy burdens. So, we're going to read this now. If you have that passage, please stand. We'll read verses 7 through 11 from 1 Peter chapter 4. If you don't have a Bible, the passage is on the screen in front of you. It says, The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to Him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Oh God, would you please open our eyes and hearts to behold the wonderful, gracious, beautiful truth of your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Four things in this passage that I want you to see about how the church is to be a refuge for sinners and those hurting and carrying heavy burdens. Finding refuge in the church is the title of the sermon this morning. So we're going to run through these things relatively briefly. Four things. First of all, there's refuge to be found in prayer. Verse 7, Peter begins, the end of all things is at hand. Okay, we need to stop for just a moment to examine that. This brings questions to some people's minds because here is Peter writing 2,000 years ago saying things are just about to come to an end, and here we are 2,000 2000 years later looking back and saying, well, things haven't ended. Um, What happened there? Was Peter wrong? The end of all things is at hand. It's a long time to pass without an ending to come. 
Um, it, this is, like I said, a big problem for a lot of interpreters of the New Testament. There are other passages in the New Testament that seem to talk about this imminent ending of the world and it hasn't happened. Well, here's how I would explain that. I think what Peter means here is not that the end of the world is going to happen any second, any moment right now. I think what he means is that when you consider the whole entire flow of God's redemptive plan, pretty much all of the major events have already taken place. God has created the world. We have fallen as a human race. God has responded with a promise of redemption. God has raised up the nation of Israel from which has come the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, who has been born into this world. He's lived on this earth. He's fulfilled all the requirements of righteousness. He's gone to the cross. He shed his blood. He's atoned for the sins of his people. He's been risen from the dead, and he promised that the Holy Spirit would be poured out on his people. And on Pentecost, that's exactly what happened. The Spirit was poured out. The church then began to flourish, and the kingdom of God expanded as the gospel has been preached, and God's elect have been gathered in from all four corners of the earth. All of that is in our past. There's just one major thing left, and it's the coming of Jesus Christ the second time to close history and to judge the living and the dead. That, that's the last thing we're waiting for. Everything else is done. And I think that's what Peter has in mind here. The end of all things as, is at hand. We're just waiting for one more thing. That's why the Bible says we are actually in the last days now as Christians. So, Peter makes this point, the end is at hand. So then he says, therefore, and he gives this command, therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded. Now, that's just to me very interesting. He's commanding us to be sober-minded, to be thinking clearly, to bring our intellects to bear on, on what? You know, typically, if we think about getting our minds ready for something, we think about getting our minds ready to, to study for a, a test or to write a paper or to teach a class or to, to preach a sermon. But what Peter says is here, no, be sober-minded, be clear-thinking for the sake of your prayers. Have you ever thought about prayer that way? That, that prayer, that your prayers can be made more effective when you think clearly as you are praying. I think there's this stereotype that prayer is mostly about just feeling a certain way. Like if we have a certain emotional response, then we feel like we must really be praying. And it's not that emotions shouldn't take part in our prayers. Of course they should. But what Peter is saying here is that you need to think carefully when you pray. Prayer is an intellectual exercise. You recall the promises of God's Word and you bring them to bear on your prayers. You think about the circumstances that you're praying for. You think about the details and you pray through those. You think about the person for whom you're praying. You think about that person's fears, that person's weaknesses, that person's insecurities, and you pray and intercede for that person with those things in mind. That's what it is to think in a sober-minded way as you pray. And this is what Peter is commanding us to do. Be thoughtful and reflective in your prayers. Now, how does this bear upon this uh, question of finding refuge in the church? Well, let's not forget here that Peter is writing to a community. He's writing to a church. And I think Peter certainly has in mind here not just the individual prayers that we offer up, but corporate prayer. 
Those times when God's people gather together as a group and pray together. The, the prayer meeting of a church. There's one writer who said the thermometer of the church is its prayer meeting. That, that you want to know the, the spiritual condition of a church? Go to its prayer meeting. Now you're asking, well, what's the prayer meeting like here at New Life? Well, come to our next prayer meeting and you'll find out. We do have a prayer meeting here every, every month. The last Sunday of the month, 6 p.m., we meet for prayer. And friends, if you're carrying <coughs> heavy burdens, you're, you're suffering, you're afflicted, you're weighted down right now, I want to encourage you to come to our prayer meeting. There is just something beautiful about being among other Christians, and when you feel that you are just too weak, too broken down to even open your mouth to speak to God, you can hear your brothers and sisters opening their mouths on your behalf. You need that in your life. You need other brothers and sisters storming the throne room of heaven on your behalf. And if you're not in a situation where you're suffering, well, you need to be at a prayer meeting so that those weak people can hear you opening your mouth on their behalf. I remember once, I've shared this story before, but Mary and I were in Alton, Illinois. I was the part-time pastor of a small church. <clears throat> it was a hard time for us. There were all sorts of obstacles and difficulties, and Mary and I were just so discouraged at that time. And um, we had a, a guest pastor who was there at the time from a Baptist church. His name was Roger. And Roger said, just in the middle of the service, he said, I just, I just want to call Bob and Mary up right now. And I just think we need to pray for them. And he brought us up and he got some people around us and they gathered around us and laid hands on us and prayed for us. To this day, I have no idea how Roger knew <laughs> that we were carrying such heavy burdens at the time. But in the couple of years that I was in ministry at that church, that's the thing that I remember the most, is God's people gathering around us in prayer. Of course, in our life groups, that's another place where we pray together for one another. Um, here's what Peter is saying. This is a place for those who are suffering, who need refuge. Find refuge in prayer, not just your personal prayers, but in the prayers of God's people. Okay, secondly, Peter says we should find refuge in love, and the love that is given at the church. Verse 8, above all, he says, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. You've probably heard when you hear stories about military action, you've heard about friendly fire, you know, where somebody is shot by somebody on his own side, and often there are fatalities that way. Sometimes soldiers get killed accidentally because their own friends or people on their side accidentally shoot them. You know, sometimes there's a lot of friendly fire in the church. You know, a lot of us feel sometimes like we're getting shot at, at least, by our brothers and sisters in the church. We've got the church throughout other parts of our world, churches being bombed, Christians being killed from the outside. There's this persecution. What a shame it is that we would fall apart from the inside through hard-heartedness, through grudge-holding, through gossiping. And yet, that happens often. And by God's grace, 
think largely we've been spared of that here at New Life. I'm not talking necessarily about this local congregation. I'm just talking about the church in general. And you might know what I'm talking about in other churches that you've been in. You felt like you've been shot at. What Peter here is saying is that above all, verse 8, above all, the top priority, what Peter says here, the top priority is not getting all our doctrine down, not making sure we're taking care of all the poor, not making sure that we have all of our political positions right, although those things all might be very important. What Peter says is above all of those, above all, you've got to be a people who love one another earnestly, continuously, persistently, without fail. Love one another. Isn't that what Jesus said? Here's how people are going to know you're my disciples. If you love one another. This is what the world wants. They want to be in a community where true, sincere love is not something that's just talked about, but something that's real, something that actually exists. And Peter goes on and he says that it's because love covers a multitude of of sins. Love covers a multitude of sins. Well, what does that mean? Here's the reason why love needs to be such a top priority in the church, because love covers sins. Now, what does that mean? I mean, I guess if we didn't understand this correctly, we might think that that we can love somebody so much that our love covers their sins. You know, is that... what is being said here? I don't think so. It's only the blood of Jesus that covers anybody's sins. Uh, some people might think, well, if I'm just a really loving person, I love people really well, then God will forgive my sins. That will cover my sins just by my ability to love. And, you know, that's not what it means either. This is actually borrowed from a proverb. Peter here is quoting the proverb. And what this means is that... Um, When you are a Christian and you are so captivated by the gospel, your heart has been so softened by the fact that a Savior would die for you and shed blood for you, and that all of your sins and all of your offenses against this God have been wiped away and forgiven and fully and completely pardoned, that when you are so captivated with that truth, you have this supernatural ability and willingness and tendency to just overlook the sins that people commit against you. Now, the Bible is very clear that there is a time where we need to challenge, confront one another in sin. Matthew 18, if your brother sins, go show him his fault. Galatians 6, if somebody sin, restore him gently. So there is a place for that. But, you know, if we were always keeping a list of everybody's sins, that's all we'd ever be doing is sitting down and having confrontations with people over their sins. The reasons that doesn't happen is because in most cases, your love for them should cover a multitude, a whole bunch of sins. It should be your love for them that gives you an ability to just overlook it. You know, I'm just not going to be bothered by that. I'm not going to dwell on that. I'm not going to get hung up on that thing that he said or that she said or that she didn't do or that he didn't do. Proverbs say this in many ways. Good sense makes one slow to anger. It's his glory to overlook an offense. That's a glorious thing. Proverbs 12, 16, the vexation of a fool is known at once. Just as soon as that person's mad, everybody knows about it. But the prudent one ignores an insult. Think of that. Ignore, somebody has insulted you and you ignore it. 
You don't dwell on it. You don't plot your revenge. You ignore it. Proverbs 15, a hot-tempered man stirs up strife, but he who is slow to anger quiets contention. This is what Peter's talking about. Love covers a multitude of sins. The love for God for you in the gospel creates in you a love that exceeds your readiness to be offended. That's what hurting people need. People carrying deep burdens don't need to come into a church and have to deal with a whole new set of burdens to getting shot at by other Christians who are irritated because they haven't done this or they have done that. That's what Peter's talking about here. Refuge in love, all right? The third thing, refuge in hospitality. Verse 9, Peter says, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Uh, some of these passages in Peter have been hard to interpret. This, this one isn't. This is pretty, pretty straightforward, isn't it? Show hospitality. Uh, this isn't the only place that the Bible says it either. It's repeated in other places. Romans 12, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Hebrews 13, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unaware. The book of Hebrews says show hospitality to strangers. That's actually what the word hospitality means. In, in the Greek, the word is actually just divided up into two words. One of the roots means love, and the other means stranger. That, that's what hospitality means, love for strangers. And when's the last time you had a stranger into your house and prepared a meal for him or her? That's the biblical idea. However, that's not what Peter has in mind because you'll notice he says in verse 9, show hospitality to one another. So what Peter has in mind here is hospitality that is being shown within the body of believers, within the community of faith to our brothers and sisters in Christ. This is something that Christians ought to be in the regular habit of doing. Hospitality is a beautiful thing, isn't it? I mean, you know the Motel 6 commercial, right? We'll, we'll leave the light on for you. I don't know if they even show that anymore. I haven't seen that in years, but I mean, that was a wonderful ad. What, what, what is that communicating? We're going to leave the light on for you. What that says is, we're thinking of you. We have a place of refuge prepared for you. We're, we're waiting on you. We're expecting you. That, that's the beauty and the power of hospitality. Now, hospitality is not always easy, right? Um, it can require, require a lot of work, getting things set up. It can require a lot of money sometimes, getting all of the materials. Some of us are insecure about our home, about the cleanliness of our home or the size of our home. And then there's, you know, making conversation with people that maybe you don't know that well. And there's all these awkward things that's kind of uncomfortable. And Peter understands that completely, which is why he says at the end of verse 9, do it without grumbling. <laughs> you know, he doesn't say, well, if it's really hard for you and you don't really like it, you don't, yeah, you don't have to do it. He says, no, you've got to do it, but just don't grumble about it when you do it. Show hospitality. I wonder what the um, attitude is among a lot of people about this New Life as a church, as to whether we're a hospitable church. I mean, I'd, I'd be interested to know your answer to that. Are we a hospitable church? 
I'm pretty sure that we're a friendly church. I'm pretty sure about that. I think when people come here generally, they meet people who are smiling and friendly and welcoming and say hello. But to be a friendly church is not necessarily the same as being a hospitable church. And I'm not saying we're not a hospitable church. I'm, I'm asking the question, are we a hospitable church? There are so many opportunities here, friends, to offer hospitality to one another. We have people in this congregation who are carrying heavy burdens. They're grieving major developments and problems and difficulties in their lives. Do you know what an encouragement it would be for them to find refuge in your home for a couple of hours? We have widows in this church who need to be reached out to, invited into people's homes. We have a lot of college students who are away from family haven't had a home-cooked meal, haven't been in a home maybe in a, lot of, a long time. We've got a lot of international students here who long to be invited into American homes. The place where hospitality ought to be shown is the church. And this is what Peter is commanding. Take refuge in hospitality. One last thing. Peter says <clears throat> that there's refuge here in the service of the church. And this is in verses 10 and 11. Oh, speaking of hospitality, we have a pitch in today. (laughs) Talk about hospitality. Um, You're all invited to stay and have a meal with us after this service. Uh, Man, it would have been horrible if I would have overlooked that. Glad I have the note right there, pitch in. Um, Come to our pitch in today. And if you haven't brought food, it's okay. Don't let that discourage you. We want you to hang around and enjoy fellowship and food with us as a church. That's in the fellowship hall um, straight across the other side of the building. Refuge and service, verses 10 through 11. So now Peter goes and he says a few things here about um, spiritual gifts. And um, we, we had a sermon actually about, I don't know, a couple of months ago on spiritual gifts. So I'm not going to go into this in any great great detail. Um, We did hand out a spiritual gift survey at that time for you to complete so that you can discern what your spiritual gift is. If you didn't get one of those and want to fill out that survey, we do have copies at the welcome booth, so you can grab those uh, when you leave. But um, a spiritual gift is just basically any talent or gift or ability that the Holy Spirit has given to you so that you can use it in service to the church. That's what a spiritual gift is. It's a little bit different than a talent. It's something given by the Spirit for service to the church. And what Peter makes very clear here is that everyone has a gift. Every Christian has a gift. Do you see that in verse 10? As each has received a gift. This is a very gifted church. And I know that because those of you who are Christians have a gift. We are a gifted people. And one of your responsibilities as a Christian is to figure out what that gift is. One of our responsibilities as leaders is to help you figure out what that gift is. Everybody has a gift. And here's one of the reasons why it's so important for you to find refuge in the church, to connect to a church. It's because God has given you a gift, and he's given you that gift so that you can use it in service to a church. So when you're not involved in a church, when you're cut off from the church, 
when you're trying to live your Christian life on your own, what you're doing is depriving the body of Christ of your gift. But not only that, you're also cutting yourself off from the opportunity to be blessed by the gifts that God has given others for your sake. People here have gifts, they have things to say, they have wisdom and certain experiences and abilities and mercy and love and care that can absolutely be the thing that you need to be sustained for the next week. And there's sometimes maybe you come to church on a Sunday morning and maybe you don't like the sermon and maybe you don't like the music, but you never know you're going to run into one person who's going to say one word to you that is exactly what you need to hear. And it just brightens your day and it helps you get up and keep going. That's how spiritual gifts work in the church. You need to use your gifts in service to others, but you need to allow yourself to be served by others. And we see here Peter goes on, the purpose of these gifts is not to get attention. It's not to find your self-worth in them. It's not so that you can earn your way into heaven by doing all these good things. No, what Peter says is, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as stewards of God's varied grace. God has given you this gift. He's given you responsibility to use it. And now he wants you to use it to serve. Gifts are given for service. Isn't it interesting? The 1 Corinthians 13, you know that passage, the very famous passage on love that everybody's heard? Do you hear on weddings all the time? If I have the gift of and tongues of angels, but I do not have love, I'm nothing. 1 Corinthians 13, you know that passage. Do you know that it's right in between 1 Corinthians 12 and 1 Corinthians 14? Both of which are concerned with spiritual gifts. 1 Corinthians 13, the great love chapter, is given to us in the context of the use of spiritual gifts. You know, it's a little bit out of context in all those times it's used in, in weddings. I mean, it's appropriate for that, but... What the whole idea there is in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14 is that love should find its expression as we take the gifts that God has given us and serve others. And the reason why this is so important, friends, is because we have a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who has died for us, is risen from the dead and still ministers in this world through the hands, feet, eyes, and ears of the people of God, the body of Christ, the community of faith. This is how Jesus continues to do his ministry in the world, through his word, through the spirit, and through you and me as his people, who show the love and mercy and grace that Jesus showed to those who come to us carrying heavy burdens and afflictions. Peter goes on, he just talks about word and deed ministries, that if we speak, we should speak the oracles of God as if we're talking on God's behalf. And if we serve, we should do it in the energy and strength that God supplies. We can't do this on our own. We have to lean on Him to provide us the energy we need. Ministry can be exhausting. <laughs> so thank goodness that we have a God who supplies us the energy that we need. Well, Maybe you're here this morning and maybe you identified with the story I told at the beginning. You know, maybe you're here, you're carrying deep, dark secrets. You've got a lot of griefs. And, you know, sometimes you just, you don't come to church. You don't come on Sunday mornings. You don't go to life group because you, you just don't want to be exposed. 
You, know, you just don't want your dirty laundry to be aired out in front of everybody. You're embarrassed. I just want to encourage you, friends. Go to Jesus, first of all, with your grief, if you haven't already. Go to this Savior. Lay your grief, lay your shame at the cross. He will carry your shame for you. He will not turn you away. His blood is sufficient to wipe away that sin, whatever it is, no matter how serious it is, no matter how ashamed you are of it. The blood of Jesus is sufficient to forgive you and to pardon you. But after doing that, don't remain by yourself. Find refuge here in the church or wherever the church where the gospel is preached. Find a place, give yourself to that. Be blessed by the prayers of the people. Allow people to love you. Allow yourself to be invited into people's homes. Allow yourself to be served by the gifts that God has given to His people that you would be able to say, and I'm confident that you will if you give this a chance, that you will say how good it is to be in the family of God where the bonds of peace and of acceptance and love are among us. That's what we're going to sing about now, how good it is. Band, come forward. Let's stand. Get ready to sing. God in heaven, thank you so much for your word to us, that you give us refuge from our troubles and our pains and our sufferings, most fundamentally in the gospel, but also in your people. We thank you for that and praise you for it in Jesus' name.